henotheism? In my Hebrew Bible? It's more likely than you think. I'm Austin. I'm Nathan. And, and welcome, welcome to the, to the world, world of, of religion. religion. Welcome back to the world of religions, everyone. Some changes have taken place. We have ads now. Yeah, we're moving on up in the podcasting world. Neither of us have jobs, so yeah, we have to do this. Watch our podcast a lot. Yeah, you, you take what you can get, right? Yep. Yeah, we'll just be putting that right after the uh, the intro music bit for every podcast from here on out. Should only be about 30 seconds. Yep, so you can get right back to wild adventures in the world of religions. And Woo. today, we're covering a topic related to our episode before last so we covered hinduism and monotheism polytheism and all of that and we're gonna bring things a little closer to home for many of you westerners listening and the assumption that judaism specifically in its ancient origins is a monotheistic religion uh you may recall that in the episode on hinduism i briefly mentioned the term henotheism Austin's going to walk us through that a bit and introduce this likely unfamiliar topic. Yeah, so when you have polytheism, you can see the obvious etymology. It's polytheism, which is simply, you know, many gods. Poly in Greek is many. And then monotheism is monotheism, one god. Henotheism also takes a Greek word of heno, which is single in Greek, individual. However, the, the context of that single for Hino is different than mono. Mono being one as in the number one. Hino being single as in single among others. When you say there is a single person, I don't mean that this is the only person that exists. I mean I'm talking about this specific person. And that's kind of what henotheism means for gods. There are a bunch of gods in a henotheistic framework. A henotheistic person would believe in a vast number of gods. Could be a pantheon, or it could be just be a sort of all gods, like, oh, every religion has its own gods, and all of those gods are true. Sort of a Unitarian thing. It could be any of those, except the Henotheist, while he or she would acknowledge the existence of a bunch of gods, would only direct his or her worship towards one or a few of them. And you can see this, interestingly enough, in ancient Judaism, which is not what most people think when they think about ancient Judaism. Christians would usually not like this, as they want to claim their monotheistic origins going all the way back into Judaism. Jews do not like this because they want to claim their monotheistic origins going all the way back to the inception of their religion. So yeah, it's a kind of an interesting an interesting thought. It is an interesting topic. And you know, Austin just gave an excellent introduction to the term henotheism. And this discussion gets into the study of the history of Israel's religion. And scholars will debate exactly what early Israelite religion looked like because of several factors. For one, if you look at the Hebrew text, there are various reasons to believe that there has been a process of editing. And so some passages may seem to indicate a belief in multiple gods. Others are more strictly monotheistic. So for instance, Isaiah is often considered one of those really strict monotheistic texts. You have verses that say things like, I am God alone, and there are none beside me. On the other hand, you have texts like Psalm 82, which read, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. So whenever you have plural gods in the Hebrew Bible, 
that can be a bit eye-raising or eye-narrowing because we're expecting coming from our cultural backgrounds that this is going to be a text that affirms solely the existence of one god. And this isn't just a Western perspective necessarily because Judaism did become very monotheistic later on. And that's, that's completely uncontested. Like definitely by the time of Josiah's reform, which was in the mid 600s uh, BC, you have a very monotheistic nationalistic religion being developed. And that's completely supported by all the archeology, span all the epigraphy or literature. And then definitely after the exile, and in the Jewish philosophical texts in the uh, first couple centuries, even into the medieval period in the Common Era, it's very clear that Judaism is monotheistic. So it's important to note that Judaism is certainly a monotheistic religion now and has been for several thousand years. It's just its ancient origins that are a bit more complicated than that. Right. So like Austin mentioned, the archaeology demonstrates that Israel became monotheistic in it during its history. But there are also examples of archaeology, for instance, the infamous inscription of Yahweh and his Asherah, which yes. seems to depict Yahweh with a female goddess. And so you can see that definitely, even though it's contested whether or not this was part of the established religion or whether this was part of popular religion, there was certainly a period of time where, at the very least, the common people had a perception of Yahweh among other gods. So why don't you talk about the, uh, the idea of the divine council for a bit? One of the verses you mentioned earlier was Yahweh took his place among the divine council. Am I, if, am I quoting that correctly? Right, yeah. So what is this concept? Yeah, so that was Psalm 82 I was quoting. And the divine council is an idea that appears across religions, really. I mean, we're familiar with this concept from ancient Greece and Rome, right? Think of how many paintings there are of Jupiter or Zeus sitting in the center amidst the whole host of other gods, Juno, Hephaestus, and so on. But that concept is not exclusive to those religions or to the others where they appear, like Norse religion. Uh, the ancient Near East also had instances of pantheons and the divine council. Now, this is where things start to get rather technical, but I'll do my best to put this forth as plainly as possible. Well, I'm here, and yeah. <laughs> while I'm no stranger to technicality, I am a stranger to these technicalities, so I'll do my best to keep you on, on a, a layman's level. Great. So, one of the scholars who's done a lot of work in the field of divine plurality and the divine council in the Old Testament is a fellow named Michael Heiser. And a lot of what I'm going to be talking about today, I've gleaned from reading his various books and articles. So, Heiser makes the case that what you see in ancient Judaism is a reflection of a unique feature of Canaanite religion, which is the high god and the vice-regent. So in Canaanite religion, and of course, Canaanite religion is closely related to Israelite religion, geographically, in time, culturally. And in Canaanite religion, you had the high god who was named El, and this is the same Semitic cognate that underlies Elohim, Elyon, various Hebrew words for god. So El is the high god in Canaanite religion. Baal, who you're most likely familiar with from the Old Testament, is uh, what's known as the vice-regent. And so while Ale is technically the head of the Canaanite pantheon, Baal is sort of like his right-hand man. Okay. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, there is, on several occasions, especially within the Deuteronomistic history... Which is, this is, the Deuteronomistic history is the uh, books 
starting in Deuteronomy, continuing on to, I believe, Second Kings, correct? Yes, exactly. Thank you for that. So it's like the middle part of the Hebrew Bible. Exactly. So in these texts, you have the appearance several times of a figure known as the angel of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord. Right. I've heard, I've actually heard Christians a lot of the time refer to this as an incarnation of Christ. Yes, exactly. That's something that started with as early as the early church fathers. So this, this is interesting because like, it's a point of contest between Christians and Jews here. There's a real, it's a really interesting phenomenon when you have two religions sharing the same religious text. But you are onto something there. And I'll get towards that a little bit later. But essentially, this figure in the Hebrew Bible, the angel of the Lord, is described in language that is both vague and unusually, maybe you could say incriminating of his identity. His identity as? Well, that's the thing. He's described in terms that make it sound like he is actually Yahweh. Okay. But at the same time, he's referred to as the angel of Yahweh. So for, for example... In Exodus 3, we have the famous scene where Moses encounters the burning bush. Now, Austin, from your Sunday school memory, who talks to Moses? God, as in Yahweh. Right. Except if you read the text closely, it says that the angel of Yahweh is the one who is in the bush. Right. Okay. But when it speaks, it says Yahweh speaks to him. And so this is that vagueness I was talking about. Mm-hmm. We're dealing with multiple characters it seems but are they so separate are they different uh, i wonder how closely this connects to uh, hindu incarnations or uh, avatara like we talked about uh, two weeks ago where you have manifestations of the same god as different individuals or is are we dealing with an entirely separate concept here no i think there could be some sort of notional similarity there maybe okay. it's an interesting yeah it's an interesting parallel you're picking up on there Another interesting case of this is in Genesis, where regarding the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the text says, Yahweh called down fire from Yahweh in heaven. That's what the Hebrew itself says. Yes. Okay. Oftentimes, English translations will sort of try to cover up the awkwardness, probably because the awkwardness almost makes it sound like there are two Yahwehs here. Hmm. So that, that's interesting. Now we have, we have two individuals that we're looking at here. Right. And so this leads to the argument made by Heiser and those who follow him that what we're seeing here is a parallel between the ruling structure of Canaanite religion and the structure of Israelite religion. So if you think of Canaanite religion again, you have El and Baal at the top, El being, you know, the figurehead nominally, but Baal being the one who's oftentimes active in the world and with the other gods. And in Hebrew religion, you have Yahweh in heaven, and you also have the angel of Yahweh. Hmm. So that's interesting, and we'll come back to that for a second. But now let's also think about, you know, all the other gods, because we're kind of narrowing this down, right? Yeah, okay. But like I mentioned, there's this idea of the divine council. And Bel, excuse me, and El and Baal are not the only members of the divine council in Canaanite religion. Likewise, Yahweh is not the only divine being in the Israelite pantheon. So in Deuteronomy 32, also known as the Song of Moses, in verse 8 and 9, there is this really interesting poetic description of Israel's origins, or even the history prior to Israel's origins, because it describes how Yahweh chose for himself Israel among all of the nations. 
It says the most high apportioned the nations according to the number of the sons of God. Now, this is a reference in all likelihood to the story of the Tower of Babel, hmm. where the nations are broken and, you know, the people were unified, but then separated. Yeah, the for those unfamiliar with the story, it's that the uh, all the people of the world got together to build this tower because they wanted to show off to God. God had just recently flooded the world. They were not having that. And they wanted to build a really big tower, conceivably to, you know, be higher than the floodwaters. And God was not happy with that, so he confused their languages. And this is the ancient Jewish myth for why people speak different languages. And so by confusing the languages, everyone disperses, and they can't talk to each other, they can't build their tower. There you go. Right. And so Deuteronomy is looking at this story and saying, well, this is the origin of all the nations having different gods and religions as well. Hmm. So with the with the confusion of languages, you also have diversity of, of religion then. Yeah. So one way you might think of it is Yahweh is looking at all these people and saying, humanity has been rebellious. I'm going to give the nations over to these other beings for, uh, you might call it stewardship, shepherding, various interpretations there. Okay. But sort of as managers. And I'm going to start over with Israel. And so Israel is uniquely Yahweh's nation. And that's in the same way that the Assyrians would consider themselves the nation of their own god. Right. So you have this concept in the ancient Near East of the national deity. So Yahweh is Israel's national deity. Baal is Canaan's national deity. So on and so forth. The Assyrians have their own. The Persians have their god. Phoenicians. And Deuteronomy sees the origin of these national deities as... Yahweh, because in Israelite religion, Yahweh is the sovereign over all gods. And this goes back to that divine counsel idea. And this is where Psalm 82 gets so interesting, because Yahweh is judging the other gods in Psalm 82 for being corrupt rulers. And you can't judge something that doesn't exist. Exactly. That's why it's unsatisfactory to read this as just poetry. It is poetry, but it's describing a very relevant theological reality, which is Yahweh has looked at the nations and their corruption and their fall into sin and is laying the blame for that at the feet of these gods who are supposed to be managing them well. So let's recap this whole thing then. The Jewish, the ancient Jewish religion is solely dedicated to Yahweh. They believe Yahweh is the one big most important god that he is their god they are his people but we also have this angel of yahweh figure who functions a lot like a vice regent in the same way that el and baal have a dynamic in canaanite religion right and because of that similarity there looks like multiple divine beings so too we have a lot of texts in the hebrew bible that talk about god judging yahweh the one god of the Israelites judging the many other gods of the other nations, seeming to admit to their existence, rather than the conventional understanding today, which is that the ancient Hebrews did not admit to these other gods' existence. They just, they weren't real things in their perception. Yep. Divine politics is just as complicated as human politics. Yeah, actually, <laughs> so it would seem. So, here's the question, though. Now, I can, I am, I'm sure that a lot of Jews and also probably a lot of Christians would not want to take this lying down. Right. How would you respond to a number of criticisms? I, I know from experience that we have the story of Elijah calling down fire from heaven. If you don't know, 
at some point in the Hebrew Bible, and I don't remember which book, Elijah is a prophet of Yahweh for the Hebrews, and he's facing off against the prophets of Baal. And as the story goes, he's, he says, oh, well, let's get some pyres together when we put a sacrifice on them, and you call Baal to bring fire down and light your god, or light your uh, sacrifice up, and I'll petition Yahweh to call fire down and light my sacrifice up. All the Baal people do their whole ritual, which includes a number of sacrifices and cutting themselves and other things, and no fire comes. Elijah does his prayer. He actually soaks the, he like goes hard mode to, to <laughs> and show before off. he does that, even he makes fun of all the prophets of Baal saying, oh, maybe your God's on a vacation. Try it being louder. Right. So he, he makes fun of their gods. He goes into hard mode and then prays. And according to the story, Yahweh sends fire down and consumes the sacrifice. Elijah wins. And then he kills all of them because that's how you settle those kind of disputes in the ancient world. Regardless, that story is very mocking, and it's very, it seems to have an attitude of against that god even existing, not merely against its powerlessness. Elijah is really mocking their god's effectiveness in any real way. He's, it, the story itself is clearly showing they prayed to Baal and nothing happened. Elijah prayed to Yahweh and something did happen. That seems to be going against the existence of these gods. Yeah, that's a... How would you respond to criticisms like that? And also, of course, the Shema, the biggest holy phrase in uh, ancient judaism and probably still today hero israel the lord your god is one yeah those are both great points and uh, i'm gonna lean pretty heavily here on a um, scholarly monograph by a fellow named nathan mcdonald called deuteronomy and the meaning of monotheism ah well I, he shares your name so of course you're gonna listen to him. <laughs> of course i have to it's a, it's a matter of loyalty so regarding the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal, MacDonald makes the point that when Elijah speaks to the people, he basically says, who are you going to recognize as, and in Hebrew he says, Ha Elohim. The God. Exactly. Ha is the definitive article, and Elohim is God. So what's going on there is a distinction is being drawn between gods in general and the god you might draw an equivalence to how in english we capitalize the letter g when we're referring to a monotheistic god typically uh, and greek does the same thing you know you can affix the definitive article to theos you can say ha theos and that's a way of saying i'm speaking about the monotheistic god here is the ha in greek too uh it's it's an omicron in greek with a breathing on it so you would say H-O in Greek, oh, okay. whereas it would be H-A in Hebrew transliteration. Well, there you go. Anyways, so by affixing the, or the definite article, to its effectively capitalization or designation. Yeah. Like so one way of thinking about the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal, then, is not a matter of which god is real, but which god has more power. Who's the god of gods? Okay. And also, I, I would imagine there's a temporal bit to this, too, because as, as we did say, the Hebrew religion did become monotheistic over time, certainly by the time of Josiah's reform. So I guess the question would be, when? When did this attitude and why did this attitude start shifting Yeah, from henotheism to monotheism? I know uh, Wellhausen talks about a general evolution of religion. Julius Wellhausen is a foundational scholar of the Old Testament who his ideas persist to this day, whether we like them to or not. Uh, but basically he talked about the evolution of religions from polytheism to monotheism, and that was a sort of natural progression in his idea. And it seems that 
the Hebrew religion did follow this to some degree. But I guess the question is why? Yeah, that's a good question. And again, it gets even further into the weeds of debate and nuances and endless arguments over how many gods is this two names for the same god so on and so forth you know it'd be a bit of a rabbit trail and also you know i'm not particularly conversant in all the weeds on the development of religion in part because it is so theoretical that's fair like scholars will spin out very long arguments making cases that are hard to substantiate so but you wouldn't necessarily stand that it's a sign of increased sophistication like wellhausen did um I'm not entirely opposed to the argument. It's an argument that has been made, and not only by Wellhausen studying Israelite religion, but also Jan Osman, who's a very well-known Egyptologist, has made a similar case about the development of Egyptian religion. However, I think there are some reasonable concerns regarding how we equate monotheism with advancement and polytheism with being backwards, so to speak, in part because generally these arguments are made by scholars who come from cultures that hold up monotheism as you know right a champion over the backwards ways of the pagans yes it would be strange to hear that coming from a hindu context even though there is a degree of monotheism monotheistic pantheism that we talked about earlier and even the terms monotheism polytheism and so on those terms were invented in an enlightenment context <laughs> to categorize religions that is against one another oftentimes favoring monotheism. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, and then regarding the Shema, so the Shema does say, you know, the Lord is one. The Lord is unique, okay. Other another way of translating it. However, there's a good case to be made that this is not so much a statement about how many gods there are primarily. It's more a case of who are you loyal to, Israel? The answer being the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is only one God whom we hmm. worship. And so you can worship one God while still recognizing that there are other beings up there in the heavens called gods that exist. You have a counterpoint? No, I think that's I think that's a, a fair explanation. I know this that the, the scholarship is overwhelmingly on this position, so I think it was good that we we took the time to talk about it. Hmm. It's it's just a very interesting because you see in the development of religions it almost followed Israel's national development in a way because you have, hmm. I mean, according to the traditional story, you have a bunch of slaves that leave Egypt and they were kind of steeped in an Egyptian culture. And then they show up in Palestine, kind of create their own kingdom that doesn't do terribly well. It's a bunch of tribes in a sort of Confederate alliance. They don't really have a unified anything, really. They don't have a temple, uh, according to their scriptural books they they're worshiping still at this at the tabernacle thing which is a, a tent it's not a serious religious structure and then you get into the monarchy in the at the start of the first millennium bce and now you have a centralized government you have kings you have a temple that gets built and as the the nation centralizes so too does it, its religion not necessarily saying that one happened because of the other but they do send, seem to happen around the same time yeah that that's a very interesting point you bring up regarding the parallels of theological development and national development because next what i was hoping to talk about is how this sort of henotheistic perspective got phased out over time and how jewish theologians grappled with these texts that seem to indicate the presence of multiple gods all right then sound like a good step forward yeah go ahead okay 
So as you heard, we looked at a couple of texts that seem to indicate the presence of multiple divine beings, both, you know, apportioned to the nations and possibly even something going on within the person of Yahweh, that being uh, Yahweh and the angel of Yahweh. And as Judaism became more explicitly monotheistic, they had to deal with these texts because since they also valued their scriptures very much, they were reticent to change them for theological reasons. That's not to say that never occurred, but they were going to be, you know, somewhat uncomfortable altering the text to defend their theological tenets. Hmm. So one of the ways they dealt with this was through the similar theological reasoning that still occurs today among these texts that seem to describe other gods. Namely, well, it's poetic, it's not literally other gods, it's a figurative representation of human rulers, those sorts of moves. Or perhaps a mockery. Right, or it's just a polemic, it's not seriously taking these gods to be real. But there was something a bit more interesting with texts regarding the angel of Yahweh. Because like I said, some of the ways the angel of Yahweh is described makes it sound like we've got another being here who is on equal or similar footing with Yahweh. And unfortunately, a lot of this development is hazy to us, but this scholar of Judaism called Alan Segal wrote a lengthy treatment of what's known as the heresy of the two powers in heaven. In rabbinic materials, you have references to this, which is a heresy wherein someone says, you know, as the name implies, there are two powers in heaven. That would be two Yahwehs, in a sense. And what Segal did, which was so interesting, is that you can trace the existence of the two powers heresy to around the same time as early Christianity and Gnosticism. Huh. So that would also be when Christianity was hashing out the Trinity, or three powers in heaven. Exactly. And it would also be the same time that the Gnostics are developing their incredibly intricate cosmologies of divine beings. Which, yeah, includes a very similar vice-regent thing when you have the monad self-reflecting and creating a lesser god. Exactly. And so by demonstrating that the two powers heresy was, or what the rabbis called a heresy, was in play around this time, that shows that maybe this notion of two powers wasn't just a medieval reflection, which is when many of the rabbinic texts were recorded, but going all the way back to these times of, you know, breakneck religious development regarding Christianity, Gnosticism, and Judaism, which are all in this cultural stream mixing together, pushing back on one another, and so forth. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And so one way of reading what's going on is some Jewish thinkers, and you know, likely Christians as well, were reading these texts that describe Yahweh and the angel of Yahweh and saying, yeah, there are two powers. Not to say that there are two gods, but almost like there are two aspects of God. And so, Austin, earlier you mentioned how uh, Christians have made the case that the angel of Yahweh is a Christophany, an appearance yes. of the second person of the Trinity in the Old yes, Testament. Yes, that's a, a common Christian interpretation. And so one way of reading the doctrine of the two powers, or as the rabbis would call it, the heresy of the two powers, is a way of making sense of these texts in a way that preserved monotheistic convictions. There is one God, but two powers. So kind of like the Christian conception of one 
one god in three persons, the Trinity. Exactly. You introduce some Greek metaphysical language, and all of a sudden you've got a similar ontological setup to what Christians would describe as the Trinity. Ooh, Greek metaphysical language. That that makes every religion more interesting. <laughs> Usia, hypostases, all those good things. Yeah. And honestly, I think uh, Greek Greek metaphysical language and religion is kind of going to be the topic of next week when we talk about occasionalism. Oh boy. Which is a very... Yeah, buckle up for that one. <laughs> so yeah, there you have it. Was Judaism monotheistic? Not all the time. Which just goes to show that religions are in a lot more flux than people like to give them credit for. It's a crazy world of religions. Yeah, and every study of religion that we do or anyone else does is always contextual, temporally. When we talked about ancient Hinduism last or two weeks ago, that's not all necessarily relevant today, nor was it all necessarily relevant all the time. It was true. It was believed at one point by a group of people, and it's preserved in some form to today, but things change all the time. Religions reform all the time, even when there, and there rarely is a big event like what happened with the Christian Reformation in the 16th century. It's just a big slow grind. Right, and... Every time we do another episode, we keep hitting on all these fascinating ways that religions shift, interact with one another, and can't wait to find out what new wild discoveries we have on our next adventure to the world of religions. Yeah, so we'll see you next week. Hope you enjoyed.